Friends, if you, hopefully you had a chance to grab a, um, a paper on your way in. If you didn't, Wayne, is, uh, he's hopping right up to, to serve you in any way that you need. So um, you can grab one of those, and i got a couple up front as well. I feel like it's been so long, I had to ask Miss Dawn tonight what the order of service was. I've, you miss a Wednesday night or two, and you can't remember how things, how things go. Um, I tell you what, I, I don't like all this being sideline stuff. You know, there I am sitting, and all the walls are closing in on you, you know, and I'm thinking, man, I mean, you know, people, people need to hear the gospel. I mean, people need to get saved, and Jesus could come back any day, and I'm going to be on the sidelines when it happens. So I'm glad to be uh, back in the saddle, as it were. But why don't we just remind ourselves tonight why it is that we're doing this series called Dose of Doctrine. Um, Sometimes it's, it's common that people make a little separation between our head and our heart, but this ought not to ever be. And here's a little illustration that I've used to, to, to paint a picture for, for how it is that we come to love and to know God in a deeper way. Uh, imagine... Imagine if you're if if you're in a in the painting business if you're Chris Crick or something like that and you and you get hired to paint a mansion right um, and so you decide that you're going to try because after all it's really it's really difficult and and uh, cumbersome to bring all that scaffolding into the house you're just going to try to paint the whole house without using any ladders without using any scaffolding. You're just going to try to do it all flat-footed and see and reach as much as you can. Well, there's going to be a lot of that house, there's going to be a lot of surface area that you just never touch because you're trying to do it all from the ground. So what doctrine is, is not this dry, dusty study. It's what we do to bring the scaffolding in the house so that we can see the glories of Christ in a more full and a deeper way. And so it, we, we hopefully get to paint more of the house. We get to experience more, more of God. So the more that we understand true things about Him, the deeper our, our well of affection for Him can grow. And so these things, the, the head and the heart, should never actually be separated. It's possible to, get, to, to become such of an egghead that you never love the Lord. Uh, it's also possible to become so lost in emotion that your emotionalism isn't really tied to what's true, to the Scriptures. And so uh, these things need to walk hand in hand in a good, godly, biblical balance. And so the last time that we met together, we were talking about some of the incommunicable attributes of God, which just means some of the things that God has that we don't. Some of the attributes that God has that we don't share in. They're not communicated to us. They're incommunicable. We hear a lot about communicable diseases these days, right? Because we've got one running through our land. But uh, in the same or in a similar way, the, the incommunicable attributes of God highlight His holiness. So you think about God's unchangeableness, his immutability. He never changes. He, his impassibility. He doesn't have passions that rise and fall. We don't have to worry about praying to God and catching Him on a bad day because His passions don't rise and fall. He never changes. He is the one rock who never moves, which is good news for us because we are the people who our passions rise and fall. We have good days and bad days. You might catch us on a good day. You might catch us on a bad day. And we are all the time changing. 
Thankfully, our God doesn't change, so we never have to worry. We never have to worry if he's hearing our prayers from one day to another. Think about the horror of what that would bring. It would be just like the prophets of Baal in, in, in Kings, right? When the prophets of Baal are, are trying to slash their wrists so that they can get their God to answer them. Perhaps their God is sleeping. Perhaps he's indisposed. Well, our God, thankfully, is not like that. He is not like us, and it is good for us that he's not like us, okay? There are some ways, though, that we share in some attributes of God. After all, we should expect this because we are created in the image of God. Now, of course, I make, very, I make much, you hear me uh, very frequently talking about Genesis 3, talking about Romans 3, talking about Jeremiah 17, and how the image of God in man has been twisted and broken because of the fall that occurred in Genesis 3. And that's a very, that, that's a reality. We see it played out. I see it played out in my heart every day. I'm fallen. We are children of our father, Adam, and we share in his sinful nature. But, but the image of God has not been completely erased. We have abilities that remain. And because of that, God is able to communicate some of his attributes to us still. So why don't we look at a couple of these? The first is this, God is spirit. The scriptures say that God is spirit. John 4.24 reminds us of that. But we also know that as spirit, God doesn't have physical dimensions the way that we do. Yet, God has given us spirits, and it's through this channel that we're able to relate to him. Listen to how the Bible speaks of this. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, in spirit and in truth. In other words, so there, there ought to be a kind of relating to God that occurs in worship. When we gather on Sunday mornings, we should not be just singing rote words. We should be considering ourselves to be singing them, true things, to God as we gather here as the people. But we're also worshiping in truth, which is why I'm so thankful for Miss Dawn and those who lead us in worship. We are very careful to make sure that the things we are singing are true things, of God. So we must worship in spirit and in truth. Also in Romans 8, the spirit, so the spirit, capital S there, himself bears witness with our spirit. So we have a spirit, and this is how we relate to God. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is one of the ways that we get assurance of our salvation. We get assurance of our salvation through a number of different ways, through believing the, the promises of Scripture. So even on those days that we doubt, oh, Lord, how could you ever save a sinner like me? We know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. These are promises that are outside of us that we get to lay hold of on those days of doubt and on those days of, of self-doubt. But another way that God gives us assurance of salvation is through the comfort of the Holy Spirit who has come to live inside of us. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It's Romans 8. So, God is spirit, and there's a sense in which 
not a sense in which, I mean, that we have spirits as well. So this would be something of a communicable attribute, uh, something that, a touch point, right? This is a part where if you know Venn diagrams, if you go back to elementary school, a Venn diagram touches a little bit right here. Here's another. There are some shadows of glory that we see. Uh, while we, uh, if you remember my, my lesson on, or my lesson on uh, the sufficiency of Scripture, we talked about the uh, the harmful um, the harmful influence of theological liberalism. Okay, theological liberalism puts man at the center, removes God from the center. Okay, uh, not so much concerned about what God has said anymore. We're more concerned about what man feels. Okay, uh, F. D. E. Frederick Schleiermacher, F. D. E. Schleiermacher, the father of liberal theology said that Christianity is the feeling of absolute dependence. You see how we see that in our culture? It doesn't matter what we believe about the Bible. It doesn't matter what if we've, if we've had a, a conversion experience. It doesn't matter if we're believing the gospel. What matters to the theological liberals is how do you feel? Do you feel like you know God. And that's really all that, that matters. So we're pushing back against that. So we, we were warned against this a few lessons ago. These, these folks say something like, the proper study of God is man. You want to know what God is like? Look at man. Well, friends, I, I hope you're not looking at me like to get a picture of what God is like, right? So that is not the way we ought to think about that. We're warned against that notion. But it remains true that the things that God has communicated to us are that they're reminders of our fallenness, but also pictures of God's grandeur. So there are some things about God that we can see uh, in a, although we see through a glass dimly, right? It's broken, it's twisted. We can see a few things that we share with God. And the first would be knowledge, okay? Let's look at this one. God's knowledge is summarized uh, in, in this, God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. In other words, for God, there is no future and past. There is nothing that he comes to know. God is knowledge. He simply knows in other words, God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows all things eternally. He knows the end from the beginning, and He ordains it to be such. God is perfect in knowledge, Job 37, uh, 37 tells us. He knows everything, 1 John 3. And only He can comprehend His own thoughts, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. God does not learn or come to know anything. Instead, He is Knowledge. Now, wait a second, Brother Greg. Doesn't it say in Hebrews that, that Jesus learned obedience? What do we do with that? Well, you're going to have to wait until we get to the Trinity, right? Okay, uh, that does not mean that Jesus is not God, but there was a, a laying aside of certain prerogatives that Jesus took on um, in his humanity. He learned obedience, and at every moment that he had an option uh, he always chose the good, but in his godhood, he never needed to learn anything. It's a mystery. We can't even speak of it fully. We can only speak of it uh, in a limited way because 
our knowledge is not fully like God's knowledge. So we share knowledge with God. We get to come to know things. We get to come to learn things. There are things that we know. There are things that we remember from the past. But God's knowledge is not like ours. Everything he knows from the past, he knows perfectly. He never has any memories that get a little fuzzy. He never remembers things the way that he wants to remember them, right? Like we do sometimes. Things that happened a few years ago, we want to remember them happening a certain way. We don't know what is in the future. God is already there. He knows what is in the future. As for us, our knowledge, <coughs> pardon me, our knowledge is limited and imperfect. We do have to learn. Our knowledge is often flawed. These are called, and this is another big theology word for the nerds in the room, the noetic effects of sin, the effects of sin that affect our minds, right? If it weren't for Genesis 3, there would be no Alzheimer's. If it weren't for Genesis 3, there would be no forgetfulness. What did I do with my keys? Where's my wallet? If it weren't for Genesis 3, there would be no, I'm really struggling to understand this algebra or how to do my taxes, right? Actually, if there were no Genesis 3, there would be no taxes. Amen? <laughs> All right. These realities prompt us, they, they prompt us to worship we can see that although our knowledge is limited and corrupted, there is a knowledge, right? Capital letters. There is a knowledge out there that is higher and perfect, and it is the knowledge that belongs to God. It is the knowledge that is God. He is the knowing God. So friends, whenever you don't know what to do, whenever you don't know what is true, rest in the fact that your God does, and you can place your, your faith in him, and you can draw your comfort from him that, that we were never meant to fully know, but God does. God does. We could also go uh, say all of the same things about his wisdom. I don't think that anybody in the room would say that their wisdom is on par with the wisdom of God, but God does impart wisdom to us. He's actually told us to grow in wisdom, to seek wisdom as, as silver, right? He's given us a whole genre of the Bible called wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Psalms. We share in His goodness to a certain degree. This is a moral attribute. Let's talk about this one because after all, and as I'm going to labor to explain on Sunday morning, if you look in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. You see how strong that language is there, talking about the nature of man. No one understands, there's no one righteous, no one even seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So in what sense do we share how do we share in God's goodness? Well, let's take a look. God defines and constitutes what is good. It's not so much a characteristic, right? It's not like God has goodness. It's more like He is good. Remember what He said of His own creation in Genesis 3. He looked at it at the end of each day and saw that it was good. How could it be any other way? After all, it came from Him who is good. He's not only, he, he is goodness, right? It's a, moral, it's a moral term. Taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, Genesis 1. 
So we get the chance to affirm what God says is good and to reflect his character. So in other words, for believers, as we come to know him, as we come to grow in him, he calls us into a life of obedience. And so every day when we seek to obey God, we're not just trying to be good little Christians, right? We're not just trying to give ourselves a little moral pat on the back that we had a pretty good day today. Actually, what we are trying to do is to share in the nature of God is, um, in a sense, let's see if I've got the verse here. First, uh, <clears throat> oh, wait a second. I know it's in Peter, and I know I've got it down here somewhere. Partake, partake in the divine nature. Where is that? I'm going to come across it in a minute. Why don't I just go to it right now? Second Peter chapter 1. says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, listen to this, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption, that's a moral term, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So, in a number of ways, we get to affirm with the way that we live, we get to affirm who God is, right? Through moral action toward our neighbors, through loving our neighbors, through living sexually pure lives. We get to, we get to demonstrate who God is through our worship. We get to share in His goodness as we sing to Him and among one another things that are true of God and how we order our families. All of these are ways that we seek to share in God's goodness and to reproduce God's goodness in front of a watching and dying world. Number three would be God's love. Now, we have love. We experience love. We get to act in loving ways. We do all of it imperfectly, but God is love. So I don't know if you're noticing a pattern. Even in the communicable attributes, the ones that we share with God, we still don't do it like he does. We still don't have a, a perfect love. We don't have a perfect knowledge. We don't have a perfect goodness, but he does. So all of these things are meant to point us back to him and to, and to rouse in us worship toward God when we see, yeah, my love, I'm working on love, but I know one who has a perfect love. Yeah, my, my goodness, the, the way that I'm trying to treat my neighbors is imperfect and I failed today, but I know a Savior who always acts lovingly. Um, I'm trying to grow in my knowledge of who God is, but I get to rest in the fact that God is knowledge and He never has to learn anything. So I worship Him because of these attributes. Every time we see ourselves fail, it's just a reminder that God never has, if that makes sense. It says this in 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the payment, the satisfaction, the covering 
for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, this is an invitation, an invitation to mimic God with the pattern of our lives. Many times, though, even Christians can confuse the culture's definition of love, right? How, how does a culture, and I, I know I don't typically open, I don't typically ask, but how would you say that the culture, how, how does our world and our, our country and our culture define love? What would you say? Any, any thoughts? Yeah, whatever feels good. James Taylor, if it feels nice, don't think twice, right? Okay. Yeah. If, 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 uh, if you, the, the, the only heresy is saying that there is heresy, right? Okay. What's it conditioned on? What are some things that love would be conditioned on? I'm sorry. Okay, absolutely. Like this transactional, like I'll be your friend insofar as it does something good for me. Yeah. Absolutely. I jotted down a couple thoughts here. Certainly not complete, but love is not the same as being nice, right? Or always positive. I don't think you should be a jerk for Jesus, but that this is not what love is. In other words, love is a commitment to live in accord with what God calls is, is good and true. Does that make sense? So, so God gets to define what love is, Okay. Sometimes if you have to say a difficult thing to somebody, they might say back to you, well, that's not loving for you to say that to me. Actually, speaking the truth could be the most loving thing you could do in that situation. We are called to speak the truth in love, so we have to do it in a way that's gentle and Christ-like. But for this reason, the loving thing to do in many cases won't be received as such. It won't be seen that way. Jonathan Lehman wrote a book on this very subject, talking about church membership and church discipline and difficult things that happen in churches when there's sin and people aren't repenting. The book was entitled, The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love. I love that title because many times the loving thing to do is offensive. It's offensive to our culture and to our even our own sensibilities. And then lastly here, number four, God's holiness. I hope that our study through, um, through Exodus has really drawn this out. That at every turn in the book of Exodus, you're seeing God's holiness highlighted. So in other words, the standard never comes down, right? It's not like we get to God. It's not like we get to be near God because God has somehow become less holy. Instead, God accommodates us in our sin. God's holiness remains intact. God's holiness is what it is. How, he, how could He possibly reconcile sinful us to Himself? He did it through Jesus Christ, the one who is just and the justifier of all who believe. God's holiness refers to His absolute perfection. He is without sin and is devoted to seeking his own honor. That's how Wayne Grudem, at least, uh, defines God's holiness. He's, he's devoted to seeking his own honor. 
Psalm 4, uh, 24, 3, and I don't know, I suppose I left off the last part of Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Does that mean we need to be good people in order to be accepted before God? Well, yes and no. How do we get clean hands? Not by washing them ourselves, but by having them washed in the blood of Jesus. It's only by His works. How do we get clean hands? Through the new birth. Who shall ascend the, whole of the, the, the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, I don't. It's a problem. That's why we need Jesus. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false does not swear deceitfully. In other words, when you come to Christ and you're changed, you're changed. So it's not that your works get you into heaven, but it's that the faith that Jesus grants us causes us to live a renewed kind of life. We are never the same anymore. Look at Revelation 4, 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes and all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. As for us, we are not holy yet, yet. Through the finished work of Christ, we can be made holy. Through justification, we're legally justified. It's a legal act that God does for the one who believes. And then we're invited into this relationship of ongoing growth and godliness called sanctification. And just the word sanctify means to make holy. Right? So we're, we're increasingly becoming more like Him as we follow Him for all of the days of our lives. And then in that final act, on that final day, when we were finally with Him in heaven, glorification is that final act whereby we are made to be fully without sin. One day, friends, we will no longer struggle with a lack of knowledge memory that fails, a body that breaks down and doesn't cooperate. No longer will our love be imperfect. No longer will we be partially holy, trying to be sanctified. No longer will we only be good in the shadowy way. We will be good in the full way when we are reunited with God in heaven where there is no longer any sin. It's a beautiful thing to look forward to. hope it'll cause you to worship God. In closing, God communicates some of His attributes to us in order to allow us to experience Him in a veiled, partial way, but also to whet our appetites for the glory that is coming when we are finally with Him. Every time that we fail to be a good neighbor, every time that we fail to have a, a good knowledge, every time we sin, it's a reminder that the God we follow is not all of these things. He is perfect in all of His attributes. Until that time, though, we seek to imitate Him. This makes ethics and our morality no small rote exercise. We're not just trying to be good little Christians, but by seeking to live out God's goodness, holiness, justice, all of these things, we believe ourselves, here it is, to be partaking in 
the divine nature. 2 Peter chapter 1. Friends, why don't we pray tonight that God would give us grace to do that, to know Him deeply and to follow Him. Let's pray. God, You are everything that we are not. You are holy. All of Your attributes, Lord, You are perfect in them. We, however, are weak. We're needy. We are dependent while You are independent. So God, we throw ourselves on Your mercy and on Your grace tonight. I pray that we would be encouraged. We would be encouraged by a vision of who You are. That as we go through these doctrine lessons and we see what is true of you, we would be drawn anew to worship you because of what is true of you. Help us to worship you in spirit, yes, but in truth also. And I pray tonight that for each believer recognized here or, or, or represented here and, and those who are not able to be with us, God, I pray that you would conform us as a church closer and closer into the likeness of your Son, Jesus. Would you begin with us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.